You know, friends, ancient Westeros had some truly busy people living in it, and perhaps none busier and more accomplished than the Grey King. I mean, sure, Bran the Builder was pretty busy. He's credited with founding Winterfell and House Stark, as well as helping to build Storm's End, the High Tower, and even the giant wall made of ice. And then Bran the Builder chased all that by learning the secret language of the Children of the Forest. Not bad, but the deeds of the Grey King were many and mighty indeed, and we do look upon them and tremble. This cultural hero of the Ironborn is credited with everything from making the first longship and teaching the Ironborn to sail, weave nets, and fish, to bringing fire to the earth, like Prometheus, which he accomplished with a good thorough taunting of the storm god. Is there someone else up there we can talk to? The Grey King cut down the horrible flesh-eating demon tree, Ig, which he then turned into said first longship. He slew the first sea dragon, Naga, the mightiest to ever rise from the waves, and then, not being done, he turned her bones to stone and crafted a long haul, throne, and crown from these bones. The Grey King is also said to have possessed the living fire of this sea dragon, which warmed his hall, whatever that means, and that hall was filled with glorious fishy things, like a starfish table and silver seaweed tapestries, most pleasing to the eye. But all work and no play makes a king too gray. And so the Grey King married a mermaid, and then supposedly had 114 sons by her. So I guess that puts her on the busiest people in ancient Westeros list as well. It definitely does. And of course, these descendants of the Grey King and his mermaid wife became almost all of the Ironborn houses, and thus they are the main progenitors of the entire Ironborn nation. As I said, he's a busy man, very accomplished, uh, but just as with the legends of Busy Busy Bran the Builder, the Grey King collection of folklore almost certainly refers to more than one individual, and the stories about him appear to encompass many overlapping ideas, concepts, events, and even cultures. Is he an ancient mariner? Someone who bred with the squishers? He's draped in fishy symbolism, but also great seer symbolism, and also Dragon Man symbolism. And he has symbolic parallels to everyone from Aaron Greyjoy and Euron Greyjoy to Garth the Green and Durin Durandin. So, who is this Grey King? Unpacking it all will actually reveal quite a lot about the Ironborn. That's, that's a bit of an understatement. So, let's see if we can understand why the Grey King seems like so many different things, depending on which angle you look at him from. Alright, hey there friends, it's your Disaster Hunters of Ancient Westeros tour guide extraordinaire, David Lightbringer, and boy have I got a good one for you today. This is going to be the craziest deep dive into world building of ice and fire that I've ever done. I've got a ton of new ideas, but before we do that, let me tell you what I think about and do in the very small amount of time and the little bit of my brain that's left that isn't occupied by the Ironborn. I watch interesting documentaries about ancient history and geology and science, like many of you. Which brings me to not only today's sponsor, but folks, the sponsor that I was most wanting to get on this channel. I'm very excited to tell you about Curiosity Stream. Are you doing the commercial now? Oh, hey, Rhaegar. Yeah, sure am, man. Come on and have a seat. Give me a hand. Learned my lesson last time, after all. Too kind, really too kind, Dave. Yeah, and actually, this is right up your alley. CuriosityStream is perfect for people like you 
who love to learn. Oh, yes. Well, I, I do love to learn. That, that's why I'm called Reading Rhaegar. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I'm the one who came up with the name, if you remember. But point is, Curiosity Stream Rhaegar really has something for everyone, including you, with a wide variety of original and award-winning documentaries, shows, and series that you can't find anywhere else. And guys, I've already had my mind blown like twice this week. I saw a documentary about gravity waves and how astronomers can detect them and use those to see the first moments of the universe. And then we talk sometimes on this channel about how forests are all interconnected through the root zone by fungi, right? Well, I watched the Curiosity Stream documentary on that and learned how that works at a cellular level. And it's incredible. It's even wilder than you think. And it really does turn the forest into like a super organism. And then besides cool science and nature stuff like that, of course, they have content on all kinds of other topics. So art, music, food, history, technology, military history. Oh, wow. Here's a four-part series on the Ironborn. This looks interesting, although I don't know if people would really want to watch four videos about the Ironborn. No, Rhaegar, that's going to be about the Vikings uh, from Scandinavia. They're kind of like the Ironborn. And actually, that series rocks. Ragnaroks. I watched the first one and learned a ton of stuff that I never knew, and I've watched a lot of documentaries about the Vikings. Yes, well, they did say exclusive content, didn't they? They sure did. And in the second part in that series, they actually built a replica, guys, of the oldest Viking longship ever found. And when they were done with that thing, whoo, it was sweet. I was ready to go raiding and make a pretty scrawny Viking, to be honest. Astounding! It's a 41-part crash course on world mythology. Wow, Dave, this seems like something you would like. Yeah, totally. I saw that. It starts with episodes on creation from chaos and the cosmic egg, which are only two of my favorite mythic concepts. But Dave, how can you afford this? This must be expensive. I know I haven't been able to find a job yet. I have been looking. Nope. Actually, Curiosity Stream turns out super affordable. Plans start at less than $5 a month. You can go monthly or annually. Whatever works for your budget. Well, for my budget, since, since you don't pay any rent. I'm sorry. Something will come through soon. I'm sure of it. Hey, are you watching Curiosity Stream already? That's right, Dave. I can watch right on my Curiosity Stream mobile app. Or your television or your computer. It's quite easy to expand your knowledge with Curiosity Stream. And there you have it. And of course, guys, this isn't just an ad. It's also a discount offer. That's right. Curiosity Stream is allowing me to offer you 25% off with the promo code LIGHTBRINGER. So head on over to CuriosityStream slash LIGHTBRINGER or scan the QR code on the screen and gain unlimited access to the world's top documentaries and nonfiction series. And now let's get back to The Grey King. Oh, and everyone tell Rhaegar what a great job he did in the comments. He loves to hear that. All right, thanks guys for watching that through to the end. I really do appreciate it. It helps the channel go farther and further. Let's talk about the Ironborn though. So once again... Our topic is the origin and nature of the Ironborn, but this time, instead of approaching that question through the two famously mysterious Ironborn artifacts of unknown origin that we examined in the last video, the Seastone Chair and Castle Pike, we'll explore it through the towering personage known as the Grey King. That's why I got my Grey Vikings t-shirt on, in case that wasn't super obvious. And the Grey King is a guy who wears many hats and... I mean that literally as well as figuratively, as there are multiple types of crowns associated with this mighty king, and multiple thrones as well. But strangely, the Grey King's thrones do not include the Seastone Chair, 
which is not even mentioned in any of his stories. That is a fact that points to a larger dynamic concerning ironborn culture that will reveal itself today as we peel apart the Grey King mythology, which is that there appears to be at least two very separate, very distinct ancient cultural traditions, or just say ancient cultures, on the Iron Islands. One centered around Wick and the Grey King, and one around Pike and Harlaw and a couple of other places that seems to have nothing to do with the Grey King. But of course, we should expect to find two separate cultural traditions being sort of zipped up into what becomes the Ironborn, because there is compelling evidence that their human ancestry, meaning non-squisher ancestry, derives from both ancient mariners from across the Sunset Sea, who are almost certainly part of or connected to the Great Empire of the Dawn, as well as First Men, who either drifted out to the islands in fishing boats or, as I believe, migrated over a formerly existent land bridge between Pike and the mainland. It may be that such a land bridge scenario would entail all the islands having once been joined together and to mainland Westeros, or perhaps it was just Pike or Pike and Harlaw, the closest islands that were joined to the mainland. Whatever the case, land bridge or fishing boats, we do know that first men were on the scene and did become ironborn. And the ancient mariner hypothesis seems pretty solid as well. We explored this in detail in the last video, The Ironborn Mystery, but let's quickly review the main points so we can build on them today as we discuss the Grey King. I've also added a couple of new arguments because I've been thinking about this stuff way too much. Beginning with the question of how do we know that ancient first men became ironborn, the custom of thraldom is the first evidence because the first men apparently used to practice it in widespread fashion, with the idea being that it died out long ago on the mainland but stayed alive on the Iron Islands and became quite the thing. This would seem to indicate a shared cultural link in the distant past, sometime before the first men stopped practicing thraldom. Now, the wildlings do some thraldom too which means the first man thraldom custom predates the long night and the building of the wall that separated the wildlings from the rest of Westeros. So the ironborn are isolated from Westeros by the stormy seas that lie between them. The wildlings have the wall between them and the rest of Westeros, and there's something similar going on with the mountain clans of the Vale and the North, who are geographically isolated by virtue of living up in the mountains and thus retain more original first man customs than even houses like the Starks or the Blackwoods. Another ancient first man tradition, which apparently survived the cultural merger between the ancient mariners and the first man ironborn, and which is found all over the Iron Islands, is the tradition of calling the king or lord of a given house by the name of the house with a the in front, such as the Harlaw, the Drum, the Stonehouse, the Spar, the Greyjoy, and the Merlin. Jeez, the Merlin? The Merling? Keep your eye on that guy. Uh, anyway, this is a pretty cool custom, and the mountain clans in the north also all practice it. Every single one, which leads us to such awesome titles as the Flint, the Nori, the Wool, the Little, and so on. You also sometimes hear people talk of the Stark in Winterfell. Bran refers to himself as the Stark in Winterfell several times once he's the oldest male Stark left there. And his Castellan Roderick Cassell does the same thing when speaking to Bran. Ygritte talks about the Stark in Winterfell wanting Bale's head when she tells the story of Bale the Bard. And Benjen Stark talks about the Stark in Winterfell having to take a hand when he tells the story of a specific Night's Watch rebellion. 
And by taking a hand, that means that <laughs> the Stark came and beheaded some people, but you know how that works. Ergo, the fact that so many ironborn houses use this naming custom is more solid proof that a lot of ancient first man culture became ironborn culture. That was one of the new arguments, by the way. So finally, there's the obvious fact that the Ironborn are never described as looking especially different than the rest of the people in Westeros. Except the fishy ones like Dagon Cut, and we know what that is. That's just them dormant squisher jeans coming out for a wee bit of fun, that's all. Point being, uh, where'd that nimble dick voice come from? I don't know. I just blacked out there for a second. Point being, if the Ironborn were 100% descended from the ancient mariners, or even mostly descended from them, they'd probably retain some sort of more distinct look, just as the Danes have. Therefore, it must have been mostly first men on the islands, but perhaps with a smaller population of advanced and powerful seafaring newcomers wielding a lot of influence. So, with that in mind... Consider the language about the Grey King teaching the Ironborn to be fishermen and sailors and net weavers and longship makers. And by the way, both net weaving and longship making, those are very refined crafts. Those, it's not, not a simple thing. So who were these Ironborn who don't know anything about sailing or other maritime culture? Who are already on the islands when the Grey King arrives? Obviously, these must be our first men who got to the Iron Islands via fishing boat or formerly existent land bridge connection sometime in the Dawn Age, probably long before the Long Night. As to the Grey King, who is teaching these landlubbers everything they would come to know about fishing and sailing and just living on an island in general, well, he must be the ancient mariner, right? I mean, if the idea is that the Ironborn alone among all the first men are the only ones to have always possessed this very advanced seafaring skill because they do in part descend from ancient mariners who sailed across the expansive Sunset Sea, just as their legends and songs claim, then this part of the Grey King legend sure sounds like a match. The tale speaks of a man with powerful magics and advanced knowledge teaching the Ironborn how to do maritime culture. So yeah, he, he must represent the ancient mariner presence on the ancient Iron Islands. The reason why I joked about the Grey King being such a busy guy at the beginning is because I really do want to emphasize the idea that his stories must surely encompass the deeds of more than one individual. In this case, it wouldn't have been a single man sailing across the sea to Westeros, or one man teaching the Ironborn everything they know about fishing and sailing, but rather a group of immigrants or explorers or colonists or settlers from across the sea. This is why I tend to see the Grey King as more of a mythological creation who is meant to represent a kind of person, or you might say, a type or race of people, the ones who came with seafaring knowledge and powerful magic and taught the Ironborn everything they know that doesn't involve stealing. The ancient mariners also seemingly unified whoever was there on the islands into a single people with one king, since the Grey King is remembered as the king of all the Ironborn, and indeed as a primary ancestor of the nation. There probably is one or more famous and mighty individuals whose deeds became the Grey King's story, and maybe someone actually called the Grey King, but the most important thing to understand is that he represents the culture that he came from, the one which came to the islands and brought its seafaring skill to the cultural stew pot here. 
Sorry, I shouldn't say stew pot. I'll attract the squishers, but moving right along. Another reason the Grey King is probably representative of our ancient mariners as a whole is because his presence on the Iron Island seems tied to the meteor impacts, which I am quite certain caused the original Long Night. This is my Russian Palisades meteor necklace, and this is the Nightbringer series, which has the whole explanation on the Long Night moon meteor stuff. I'm not going to go into it right now because we'll lose like five or ten minutes of the video. But one layer of the legend of the Grey King's slaying of the sea dragon, Naga, must surely be discussing in mythical terminology the ancient cataclysm that does seem to have befallen the Iron Islands in the distant past. A fiery sea dragon who rises from the sea to drown islands would seem to refer to either a fiery volcano erupting on Old Wick, rising from the sea and destroying land and causing tidal waves while throwing smoke and fire into the sky, or alternatively, or in addition to, an ancient meteor impact on or near the Iron Islands which triggered flooding and land collapse while similarly throwing smoke and fire and ash and debris up into the sky. The Grey King is remembered as slaying this sea dragon, so it does beg the question, can magicians in this world somehow trigger volcanoes or slay falling stars from the sky. And the thing is, whether it's possible or not, we can notice the outline of the story does line up with the broader Azor High monomyth, which always has some powerful magician calling down fiery things from the heavens and triggering apocalyptic long night cataclysms with their hubris and lust for magical power. It's a kind of story template that's repeated throughout all the ancient legends in the ice and fire world building. And the Grey King certainly does fit the pattern with all of his magical fire stealing. And this to me is yet another clue that he's an ancient mariner who sailed here from the Great Empire of the Dawn, which is the place that Azor Ahai came from. And even though I don't think the sea dragon was actually any kind of sea monster or dragon, the story does technically suggest that the Grey King possessed the fire of a dragon, and he might be ruling over an ancient volcano, which, if you kind of squint at it, almost makes him sound like a Valerian dragon lord. Now, whether or not any volcanoes were triggered by the disaster here, I do think the evidence for one of our long night meteors striking on the Iron Islands is very near overwhelming. And if I'm right about that, then the island drowning cataclysm part of the Sea Dragon story would definitely be the mythical remembering of this impact. I will also tell you that the legend of the storm god's thunderbolt, which set a tree ablaze, is more of the same, meaning a mythological remembering of a meteor strike. And this may imply that many trees or even whole forests were set ablaze and wiped out during this disaster. And of course, that's just the sort of thing that happens when a space rock falling at 35,000 miles an hour pushes a wave of super compressed burning air several thousand degrees hot in front of it as it plummets to the earth. Yeah few trees go down. So, like the slaying of the sea dragon, the calling down of the thunderbolt is a deed that's attributed to the Grey King. So again, who knows if anyone can actually call down lightning or meteors, but the Grey King does seem to, at the very least, be here when these disasters are happening. The same goes for the Great Empire of the Dawn. The entire narrative point of their existence in the story is to link a shy long night mythology about Azor High and Lightbringer, to Westeros, specifically to the Westerosi Long Night mythology about the others, about the last hero fighting with a sword of Dragonsteel, which is probably the Sword Dawn of House Dane, and also Lightbringer. Check out the first two Great Empire of the Dawn videos for that story, but 
The long and short of it is that various peoples from the Great Empire of the Dawn, which was a very big area, were definitely in Westeros during the Long Night. And that's when the Grey King seems to have been here too, and this is almost certainly because that's where he came from. This potential ironborn Great Empire of the Dawn link is strengthened by the fact that there appear to be multiple locations which have a non-First Men origin from somewhere far away and all along the southwest coast of Westeros. With three out of the four of those settlements being on islands, interestingly, and of course those would be the island fortress of Starfall, home of House Dane, who say that they followed a falling star to Westeros, who possess an anachronistic magic sword that is very similar to Valerian steel, and who manifest dragonlord hair and eye color from time to time, for whatever reason. The island fortress of Fused Stone on Battle Isle at Old Town, which became the base of the Hightower and the home of House Hightower, whom the maesters straight up claim may have descended from ancient seafaring traders, which means ancient mariners, and who, in fact, first lived in and then on top of that fused Blackstone Fortress, which could only have been shaped by dragonlords, but which was definitely, definitely made before the Long Night and before Valeria arose, and which has attached to it legends of dragons roosting on its walls. Then we have Casterly Rock, which was usurped by Lan the Clever, a golden-haired seeming magician who stole golden fire from the sun to color his hair, who is said to have come from the east, and who became the progenitor of House Lannister, living for 312 years and siring 100 sons and 100 daughters, all with golden hair. And then, of course, we have the Ironborn, who, as we know, have widespread belief in the idea that they descend in part from ancient seafarers from across the Sunset Sea, and who supposedly learn everything they know about fishing and sailing all at once from a single source. Now, I've actually been sleeping on a super obvious clue, that the Ironborn and the Danes both come from the same place, or at least a similar culture. And that is, check this out, you're gonna like this, the Ironborn are essentially Vikings, right? And many Vikings were Danes. That's Dane without the Y. But yeah, the Danish Vikings were also blonde-haired and blue-eyed, of course, just as the Danes of Starfall tend to be silver-haired or blonde-haired and purple or blue-eyed. And in fact, all the stony Dornish in that area tend to be of fair hair and blue eyes. So the Scandinavian Vikings were, of course, renowned for their advanced steelworking and sword forging. They worked with Damascus steel from the Middle East, which, of course, is the inspiration for Valerian steel. And then here we have the Danes with a magic sword and also the Ironborn being the first in Westeros to work iron. So that's Pretty cool, right? The the Vikings were Danes, the Ironborn are Vikings, the Danes and the Iron... Anyway, you can see why the Ironborn retained such a strong cultural belief that some of their ancestors were ancient mariners from across the Sunset Sea. B because they were. That's why. Ancient mariners did, in fact, come here and intermarry with the native inhabitants of the islands, teach these resident first men their advanced seafaring ways, and eventually merge with them to form one culture. But we can also see that the maesters, who insist that the Ironborn are descended from first men, and the many Ironborn who agree with the maesters, are also right. In other words, the Ironborn genome, could such a thing be tested? And shout out to Razib Khan. Check out our video with Razib Khan about uh, Lord of the Rings and Ice and Fire, which will either be out 
or out soon by the time you see this video. So yeah, the ironborn genome, could, could we test it, would surely indicate a significant heritage from lands beyond the Sunset Sea. Whether that's a shy or perhaps Carcosa, as Greyways Tim suggested recently, or anywhere else that could be off the map, just east of Ashai. Classic first man ancestry would likely still be dominant, but we'd be able to find that Grey King ancient mariner genetic pulse as well. Now, I have a lot more specific things to say about these two components, the mariner ironborn and the first man ironborn. And in fact, I'm going to completely pull them apart and show you which components of Ironborn culture came from each one, which houses were associated with. It's going to be crazy. But that will all come out in the process of reviewing the Grey King mythology with a fine-tooth comb, as we're about to do. Don't come near the damp hair with a fine-tooth comb, by the way. I don't, I don't see that going very well. The guy bathes in the sea when he bathes at all, and he has to cut his hair in six years, so... All right, so the details of the many and mighty works of the Grey King are recounted in two key passages, one which comes from the world of ice and fire and thus expresses the view of the maesters, and one which comes from the rather colorful and somewhat deranged inner monologue of Aaron Dampere, drowned priest of the drowned god, which we read most of last time. Between the maesters and the Dampere, we'll have a pretty nice range in viewpoint, actually, as we can weigh the skepticism and rational approach of the maesters against the fanatical ravings of the damp hair, which, as insane as they may be at times, will, of course, better reflect the folkloric beliefs of the Ironborn. We'll start with a maesterly narrative and then kind of spice it with the damp hair's more impassioned commentary as we go. In the Age of Heroes, the legends say, the Ironborn were ruled by a mighty monarch known simply as the Grey King. The Grey King ruled the sea itself and took a mermaid to wife, so his sons and daughters might live above the waves or beneath them as they chose. His hair and beard and eyes were as grey as a winter sea, and from these he took his name. The crown he wore was made of driftwood, so all who knelt before him might know that his kingship came from beneath the sea, and the drowned god who dwells beneath it. All right, so this is all very fishy so far. The color of his eyes, hair, and beard were gray like the cold sea of the Iron Islands, and he ruled the sea itself on the authority of the drowned god, and married a mermaid, a fish humanoid, and had fishy hybrid children who could live above or below the waves. Now that last bit is <laughs> tad on the nose, isn't it? It's flat out telling us that Grey King sired tons of children with a fish human, and specifically for the purpose of creating more powerful hybrid fish-human offspring. Sounds like a deep one breeding program to me and a pretty successful one. These fishy offspring became the Ironborn for the most part. As it says a bit further in the same passage that, the Grey King was king over all the Iron Islands, but he left a hundred sons behind him. And upon his death, they began to quarrel over who would succeed him. Brother killed brother in an orgy of kin slain until only 16 remained. These last survivors divided up the islands between them. All the great houses of the Ironborn claimed descent from the Grey King and his sons, save, curiously, for the good brothers of Old Wick and Great Wick, who supposedly derived from the Grey King's leal eldest brother. All right, we'll talk about the leal elder brother thing later, but yeah, the the legend of the mermaid mother of the Ironborn nation does constitute a pretty significant part of the Ironborn belief about their having descended from the Deep Ones. 
Although, trust me, the real truth of the Deep Ones breeding with humans is nowhere near as pretty as this mermaid, illustrated by Justin Sweet. Now, the damp hair, too, thinks about the Grey King's mermaid wife. Oh, I'm sorry, that sounded kind of creepy. I didn't mean to say that the damp hair thinks about the Grey King's mermaid wife like that, although... Who knows what the damp hair thinks about late at night in that drowned mind of his. I mean, mermaids almost seems too straightforward of an answer. <laughs> anyway, we will be focusing on the Deep One connection to the Ironborn in a video very soon, so I'll leave this idea here for now. But I do want to highlight the Grey King's cultural significance. He's thought to be the father of most of the Ironborn nation, and whether he is or not, pretty much all the houses on the Iron Islands want to claim descent from him. So it's kind of like a badge of authenticity, Grey King descent. And of course, the other part of his cultural significance is that he married a mermaid and that all the Ironborn think that they're mermaid people. So the Dampere's musing on the Grey King and Naga's bones on Old Wick adds more fishy details. Naga's ribs became the beams and pillars of his long haul, just as her jaws became his throne. For a thousand years and seven he reigned here, Aaron recalled. Here he took his mermaid wife and planned his wars against the storm god. From here he ruled both stone and salt, wearing robes of woven seaweed and a tall pale crown made from Naga's teeth. The hall had been warmed by Naga's living fire, which the Grey King had made his thrall. On its walls hung tapestries woven from silver seaweed, most pleasing to the eyes. The Grey King's warriors had feasted on the bounty of the sea at a table in the shape of a great starfish, whilst seated upon thrones carved from Mother of Pearl. Seaweed robes, seaweed tapestries. I hate to say it, but these are actually somewhat practical ideas as you can in fact make fabric from certain kinds of seaweed. It's very eco-friendly uh, fabric material. It's a Grey King and his bros also ate a lot of seafood, which of course the ancient ironborn would, as they do today. And so this is all just the sort of folklore that you'd expect from a people with a maritime-based lifestyle, right? And I'm glad it only describes a table in the shape of a starfish, because the very largest starfish can only grow to just over three feet across, which is really more end table size than something a bunch of warriors could eat loads of seafood off of. So the realism is preserved. We should probably be thinking of a wooden or stone table carved into a starfish shape, perhaps not unlike the sea stone chair being carved into a giant kraken shape. The chairs were carved too, supposedly from mother of pearl, but Mother of Pearl, also called Knacker, is only found um, as an, it's created as an inner shell by some mollusks. So you'd never have a single chunk of Mother of Pearl big enough to carve furniture out of. So unless the thrones are actual shells of oversized fantasy world mollusks, we're probably talking about thrones inlaid with Mother of Pearl, perhaps being carved from stone or better yet, driftwood. Something like that wouldn't be beyond the capabilities of Skilled ancient ironborn craftsmen and driftwood thrones would go well with driftwood crowns and would look very nice inlaid with mother of pearl. Now over on the other side of Westeros, some of you may be thinking of the Isle of Driftmark, where there is, of course, a legend that the first Valerion to come to the island, we have no idea when that happened, but supposedly this first Valerion made a pact with the Merling King, which was in part sealed by that first Lord Valerion receiving a driftwood throne from this Merling King. We'll explore this legend in a little more detail in the Deep Ones video, but for now, 
I'll simply say that driftwood is actually a renewable resource, and for people living on islands with limited timber forests, be that the Iron Islands or Driftmark, driftwood would be a practical, useful building material. North American Arctic hunter-gatherers of all types have been using driftwood for building materials and fires for thousands of years, in fact, with that driftwood coming to them in perpetual fashion from northern Siberian forests where felled trees wash out to sea, get frozen in ice, and then slowly make their way over to Alaska and Canada. Arctic hunter-gatherers are actually an underrated source of inspiration for the ironborn. Think of seal hunting and seal skinning, shout out Devin Seal Skinner, whale hunting, whale oil lamps, homes and shelters made from whale bone, think it's probably where Martin got the idea of a sea dragon long haul, be whalebone shelters, and even harvesting meteoric iron from ancient meteorites. That's an Arctic hunter-gatherer thing. Uh, look at the Cape York meteor in Greenland. I'll leave a link to a very interesting Arctic hunter-gatherer YouTube video in the description below for you to check out. So anyway, it's interesting that the Grey King is now associated with two thrones that are not the sea stone chair, right? The throne made from Naga's fangs, and now these somewhat fantastical-sounding thrones carved from Mother of Pearl. Sorry, I guess a throne made from the jaws of a sea monster is also fantastical-sounding. It's just that I think I can explain exactly what that is through symbolism, which we'll do in the next video. And these pearl thrones just kind of come out of left field. Or maybe the pearl thrones come from the Great Empire of the Dawn. That's right, because the very first Great Empire of the Dawn King, or God Emperor, as he was known, the God on Earth, the only begotten son of the Lion of Night and the Maiden Maid of Light, who traveled about his domains in a palanquin carved from a single pearl and carried by a hundred queens, his wives. Now that only begotten son line is very obvious Jesus language for anyone who's even slightly familiar with the Bible, which is pretty cool. But yeah, look, it's, it's a pearl palanquin. And of course, a royal palanquin is just a throne that people carry around. It's... Even more throne-like, if you think about it. So yeah, it's a pearl throne, and the god emperor's firstborn son, who ruled after him, took the name the Pearl Emperor, which is a title presumably taken from, or at least associated with that pearl throne of his father. Now, once again, unless there are fantasy world clams on a magnitude which the gods cannot even fathom, we would never have a pearl big enough to carve a throne out of. But this... Obviously, it could be, you know, a wooden throne covered in pearl shell or some other kind of throne that shines in iridescent fashion. Maybe it's a giant polished up meteor throne. Who knows? Or it could be symbolism. Usually with George R. R. Martin, it's both. There's a symbolic explanation and a practical explanation. But whatever the truth is behind the pearl throne, we don't have to decode the symbol itself in order to simply say that it appears in both places, meaning there are pearl thrones in the ancient mythology of the Great Empire of the Dawn and the Iron Islands, and also Jesus' language in both places, for whatever reason. And now that I think about it, the whole weird, dark, drowning ritual of the Ironborn, was George R. R. Martin, like, traumatically baptized as a child? I'm sorry, I shouldn't even speculate about that, but it, it is kind of like baptism, only very much more screwed up, so... Now, just as the Grey King is associated with multiple thrones, he is also, as I mentioned, remembered as wearing two different kinds of crowns. We heard just a moment ago from the Dampere's seaweeded-out recollections that the Grey King wore a tall, pale crown of Naga's teeth, whereas the Maesterly account says twice that Grey King wore the first driftwood crown. 
Of course, we know that the Driftwood Crown is a long-running, ironborn tradition associated with Old Wick and Naga's Bones. That's where the drowned priests like Aaron Dampere hold the king's moots to choose the high kings of the ironborn. And then, in grandiose fashion, they place the Driftwood Crowns on their heads to signify their kingly status. So, perhaps the maesters are just dismissing the tale of the sea monster tooth crown out of hand for being silly, and just kind of assuming that the Grey King must have worn the first Driftwood Crown since that's what the oldest ironborn kings in the historical record wore. Or it could be that there are simply multiple conflicting myths, just as is often the case in the real world, and it's also very possible that the Grey King mythology encompasses more than one person, and maybe those people wore different crowns. Interestingly, Euron Crozai also wears two kinds of crowns. It's I'm wearing two necklaces. That's right, I just bought this today. I've realized I has the colors of the sea going on, so I switched it up. Anyways, Euron, he's first crowned with a driftwood crown at the King's Moot by Aaron Greyjoy, his brother, in A Feast for Crows. But then in the Winds of Winter sample chapter, where he's torturing Euron with Shade of the Evening, we see that he's donned a black iron crown with shark's teeth. So perhaps this is a nod to the idea of the Grey King's sea dragon tooth crown. But of course, it's dark instead of pale, because it's Euron we're talking about. Continuing with the maesterly summary of Ironborn Grey King folklore, we get the recounting of the Ironborn Storm God Burning Tree legend, which actually has yet to appear in any damp hair or Ironborn chapter. The deeds attributed to the Grey King by the priests and singers of the Iron Islands are many and marvelous. It was the Grey King who brought fire to the earth by taunting the Storm God until he lashed down with a thunderbolt, setting a tree ablaze. The Grey King also taught men to weave nets and sails and carved the first longship from the hard pale wood of Ig, a demon tree who fed on human flesh. Now, when we, A Song of Ice and Fire, hardcores, first read this passage in 2014 when The World of Ice and Fire came out, we all thought of Prometheus right away, as you surely did just now. The language about bringing fire to the earth by stealing it from the gods is pretty clearly meant to evoke Prometheus and definitely suggests the Grey King as a magician. But what I really love here is how George Martin uses the very next sentence to explain what the concept of the fire of the gods really represents. Knowledge, applied learning, and technology. And of course, in a fantasy story, magical knowledge, magical talismans, or any kind of magical power. In other words, the Grey King teaching the Ironborn how to weave nets and sails and make longships is the practical application of the concept of bringing the fire of the gods to the earth. And this helps us make sense of this myth. Did the Grey King make the first bonfire? No, surely not, but he did teach the Ironborn how to do stuff, some of which was practical stuff like sailing and fishing and net weaving, and some of it was probably magical stuff like possessing the living fire of a sea dragon or a burning tree. And some of it was making furniture. A lot of it was. Apparently that's what they were into on the ancient Iron Islands. Shout out to all you furniture makers and salesmen out there. I, I made my own standing desk, as a matter of fact. Anyway, moving right along. So in the last video, we discussed how possessing the living fire of Naga the Sea Dragon might have something to do with using meteors for magic, which seems to be a great Empire of the Dawn thing. And now we catch the Grey King stealing fire again, this time from the Storm God by way of this burning tree. So what's the magic being possessed this time? It could be meteors again, since the thunderbolt part of this myth does sound like a meteor strike, but 
and this is a tease of the next video, which will be called Naga's Bones, the tree which burns with the fire of the gods is also a pretty clearly a reference to a weirwood tree. You'll just have to take my word for it for now if you've never heard that line of reasoning, because otherwise we'll lose another five or ten minutes and I'll be spoiling the next video. And really the only thing we need to understand for today is that we should definitely think of the Grey King as some kind of magician. Or we might say that there are magic users whose deeds contributed to the Grey King mythology, be that Weirwood magic, meteor magic, some undefined kind of fire magic, right, because he's possessing living fire. That could actually be fire magic. Could obviously be water magic here on the Iron Islands or any combination of the above. All right, so the last bit from the World of Ice and Fire about the Grey King discusses the sea dragon, which we've already talked about some, but there are a few other interesting details here, so check this out. The Grey King's greatest feat, however, was the slaying of Naga, a beast so colossal that she was said to feed on leviathans and giant krakens and drowned whole islands in her wrath. The Grey King built a mighty long haul about her bones, using her ribs as beams and rafters. From there, he ruled the Iron Islands for a thousand years until his very skin had turned as grey as his hair and beard. Only then did he cast aside his driftwood crown and walk into the sea, descending to the drowned god's watery haunts to take his rightful place at his right hand. So here we get a little bit of follow-up on the first paragraph. Not only did the Grey King have grey eyes and hair and beard, he lived so long that his skin turned grey too. That apparently was the sign that it was time to give it up, time to retire. And then we get the more Jesus language that I promised about taking a place at the right hand of God. Only it's a drowned God, and... Heaven turns out to be the watery halls under the sea. The maesters just say that the Grey King died. What a boring theory. Walking into the sea, no, that, that's, that's exciting. We also just got a second reference to the Grey King having a driftwood crown. And, curiously, the maesterly discussion of Naga the Sea Dragon does not include anything about a throne of Naga's jaws or a crown of Naga's fangs. As damp hairs squid-addled... Squid-addled? monologue does. Everyone agrees that the ribs became the beams of Grey King's long haul, and although we might imagine him sitting in the sea stone chair for a throne, since it was said to have been found here on the shores of Old Wick, this again does not seem to be the case. For starters, Naga's sacred hill isn't the shoreline, it's a hill, and more importantly there simply aren't any references at all to the Seastone Chair in the Grey King's story, despite the fact that it is of such cultural significance to the Ironborn, which makes it seem like the Seastone Chair is part of a tradition that has nothing to do with the Grey King. That would lead us to suppose that the Kraken Throne either had already been moved over to Pike when the Grey King was operating on Old Wick, or else appeared on the islands after his demise, and I definitely think the former is more likely. But either way, the lack of a sea stone chair in the expansive Grey King mythology, again, busy fellow, but no chair, does kind of strike a blow to the idea that the sea stone chair was brought here from a shy by the ancient mariners, no matter how much I played that up earlier. I, I was entertaining that possibility, but think about it, sailing a 5 to 10 ton Kraken Idol across the Sunset Sea on, on, an, on an ark would have been a huge pain in the ass, and of course real estate on the ark is precious. So this only would have been done if the Seastone Chair were central to the culture of the ancient mariners. And if that were the case, then 
Grey King would surely have sat in it once they got to the Iron Islands, or else used it for magic rituals or whatever. And then the Seastone Chair would subsequently have become a part of Grey King mythology. But instead, it's conspicuous by its absence. So if the Seastone Chair didn't come from across the sea, then where'd it come from? Well, as I hinted at in the Ironborn video, the other choice really is under the sea, and that's kind of the direction that I'm leaning in for sure. But what we can observe for now is that this throne, carved from an oily black stone into the shape of a majestic kraken, is primarily associated with Pike, House Greyjoy, and, of course, the Lovecraftian Deep Ones, as opposed to the Grey King legends, which are all tied to a sea stone chairless old wick, and which mention two other kinds of thrones which are not oily black stone kraken thrones. Now don't worry, I will be able to offer hopefully a convincing explanation of when and how the Seastone Chair becomes involved in Ironborn history. I do have that mapped out. We just have to work our way there in logical fashion so I can properly illuminate the exquisite majesty of the ancient Deep Ones cult in operation all over Dawn Age Westeros. That's right. Yeah, it's very majestic. Anyway, I did drop some pearls of wisdom about this in a recent stream called Aeron, got patch-faced, which is about the possibility that Aaron Dampere is crazy because he, like Patchface, was resurrected by the Deep Ones after having drowned a few years back and now receives constant psychic suggestions from said drowned gods beneath the waves. Like I said, squid-addled. Speaking of Old Wick, we discussed, again in the last video, how Wick means town or settlement and how Old Wick, therefore, is implied as Old Town and perhaps the first settlement of the ancient mariners on the Iron Islands, who would have arrived on Wick first if they had sailed from the west. Except for the Lonely Light, of course, which we'll talk about next time. So now we see that the Grey King made his kingly hall here on Old Wick, and since he seems to represent the ancient mariners, it kind of all begins to fit together. The very first settlement on Wick, made by these ancient mariners, would have been the one that grew up around the Grey King's Hall, which is on Naga's High Hill. This tracks pretty well with the way that many of the first city-states evolved in the real world, with the first priest kings living on sacred hills in the very first palace temples, and everyone else sort of living around the base of those hills. Overall, the picture painted is one of the ancient mariner ironborn arriving on Great and Old Wick and then spreading eastward from there, likely conquering and assimilating with the first men ironborn who were already there as they went. So thanks a lot for watching, folks. Had a lot of fun making this one and the next one and the Deep Ones video. It's Ironborn all the time here for now. Well, we're doing other stuff on the Sunday streams, which, by the way, come join us 3 o'clock Pacific time every Sunday. Thanks very much to all of our Patreon supporters and all of our channel member squishers for keeping the lights on, paying for the new colored lights and the upgraded look of things. Mwah. Thank you, guys. Appreciate y'all. And don't forget to leave a comment and tell me why I'm wrong, politely, on the way out. So, see you next time, and every Sunday. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.